First of all, I'd like to say welcome because there's a number of people that are here with, uh, with family members, so good seeing your faces, and, and you'll have no idea why I would even bother explaining this, but I am in normal shoes today. <laughs> if you call that a normal shoe, but it's, it's kind of normal. They sort of cleared me. They really didn't clear me, but I went ahead and took the boot off anyway, so yeah, don't, don't tell certain people, but yeah. I'm almost cleared, so I thought almost is close enough. All right, so in times of war, there are two extremes that we would be familiar with. There are men who want to be deployed. They want to get out there. They want to be in the battle. How many remember the name Private Roger Young from World War II? He was a little short guy, bad eyes, bad. He couldn't hear. He he got a doctor to lie for him, went in, became a big hero, died, you know, saving his men. You got people like Pat Tillman. You remember that name? After 9-11, he was an NFL quarterback, and he jumped in and, and, uh, and gave his life in Afghanistan. Then you've got the opposite. We all know what the opposite end of that extreme is. That's the people trying to find a quick, easy, uh, secretive way up into Canada. And, uh, and then you've got all the points in between. You got, so in other words, you've got people that are really, really gung-ho and the people that don't want to go. And it seems to me like if you're talking about ministry, and, I, and I'm thinking you know, of ministry, for instance, say pastoral ministry or missionaries, things like that. There are people that uh, really, really are just so anxious. They want God to call them and deploy them, and they're like, oh, I just, oh, and they're worried God's not going to get around to doing it. How many have been in that category? Like, oh, I just can't wait. I need to go. I need to go. And then there's people like, please, God, don't call me. Please, God, don't call me. <laughs> you know, like, don't send me to Africa. Don't send me to Africa. And then you got all, everybody else, and we're all kind of at points in between, I suppose. Um, here's our idea today, which you have in the bulletin. The Lord is fully able to deploy us into his kingdom work. He knows what he's doing, and we can get anxious on either side. Like, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be in full-time Christian ministry, and we get anxious that God will send us to Africa, or vice versa. You know, we just think that, well, God doesn't hear me, doesn't know my heart, he doesn't know how much I want to be in this or that type of ministry. Just... We need to chill, relax, and, and understand that God has this. And we're going to look at some ways that God had did this in the early church. And I think, even though we don't look at the book of Acts at every narrative and say, well, there, go, do likewise. N- nonetheless, I think we see here a biblical pattern that gets repeated. And, uh, and so we'll just look at these as sort of patterns for how God deploys his people. First of all, he tends to call you to specific tasks. I'm changing that. I'm just changing my wording there a little bit as not just to a specific task, but to specific tasks. Look at this in verse 25. I'm actually going to read verse 25 twice, but this is the first time. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service. That's sort of their task, right? Bringing with them John, whose name also was Mark. And I'm just going to keep calling him John Mark then for, for the rest of the duration. If you'll think back there to chapter 11, before the whole um, story about Peter and the death of Herod Agrippa, you had Saul and Barnabas. You remember uh, there was this big outbreak, this revival that took place in a, in a city called Antioch. And the Hellenists, that is the Greek culture, Jews, suddenly were converting in great numbers. And then eventually Barnabas goes and he retrieves Saul or Paul from Tarsus and brings them. And they have a year of active ministry there. How many re- kind of remember that? Yeah. And then there was this prophet 
by the name of Agabus. And he came along and he was, he was predicting that there would be a great famine. And apparently this famine doesn't spell it out, but apparently that famine was going to hit Jerusalem in a very hard way. And maybe it was just the persecution of the church in Jerusalem that they, that they were cut off from a lot of avenues of, of feeding them. So I don't know, but there was an a, a, um, offering taken at, at Antioch, and then they gave Saul and Barnabas the job of going and taking that with them. And that kind of catches us up with where we're at today. And when I look at that, I am struck by the fact that Saul, a.k.a. Paul, was not too proud and not too you know, narrowly focused in his own thought life, in his own process, that, that he would be unwilling to perform what was really kind of a very simple, rudimentary task. This is not great apostolic ministry, is it? All he did was take an offering. Uh, any accountant, you know, anybody that they halfway trusted, anybody whose name wasn't Judas, I suppose, would have, could have had that job easily given to them. But that was the task at hand. And you look at it and you go, well, I see something happening there. I see clearly that God is at work. Barnabas and Saul had already worked together, but now they're going to learn to travel together and be on assignment away from Antioch, and that's going to set them up for the, for the first missionary journey and all of that. And, and yet, isn't it interesting that, that, that Paul is answering the call to just a very, very specific, acute ministry? Think about the dangers for Saul as he thought about going back to Jerusalem. What happened to him right before he left? There was a plot to kill him. Now, not all of the Hellenists became believers in Jesus. The ones in Antioch had the huge revival. How many back in Jerusalem did? I don't know the answer to that, but if you're Paul and you're heading back there, what, what's your thought? Not to mention, again, it's just a humbling thing. And, and so to me, that really speaks. Small, specific tasks are a good way of deploying people into ministry. How many remember the parable of the talents and the principle in, behind the parable of the talents? Remember, they're given a few, and then they prove themselves faithful in the few, and then they earn more, and, and the principle that Jesus derives is that if you're entrusted with a few things and you're faithful, you'll be, what? Entrusted with more. I remember when I was in uh, seminary back in 1987, if you'll per permit me to give you a little autobiography here, that my wife and I um, wanted to get in, involved in a free church. We didn't come from a part of the country where there were evangelical free churches, so we got there and we got kind of rooted in a congregation. And I went to the pastor and I said, hey, um, just so you know, I'm in seminary, so you can put me to use any way you want. And I'm thinking, you know, like when you go somewhere, I can preach for you, that kind of thing. And he's like, great. He goes, you know what? Uh, can you help set up the tables for the dinner today? And I went, Yep, yep, that'll be great. That'll be just grand. And I did that. And then, and then it was like, hey, you could help with Awana. And I'm like, yay. Because <laughs> I'll just admit, I was really, really, I was working full time and going to school full time and, and driving an hour any direction pr pretty much. But you know what? Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that. And then, and then it's like, why don't you teach the, the second uh, and, and third graders in Sunday school? Like, okay, yeah, sure. I. I can do that. And you know, it was, I was almost out the door by the time they finally asked me to preach. And it wasn't even Sunday morning, it was Sunday evening. Yeah. And I'll never forget, and this is just, this doesn't tie in at all, except for me, it's part of the story. Um, one day, 
Um, they invited a, seminar- a fellow seminarian who was, in fact, I don't think he was far, as far along in seminary as I was to preach on Sunday morning, and the guy hadn't volunteered at all in the church. But he'd been a lawyer before he went to seminary, and everybody was so impressed that a lawyer, you know, because in heaven, the lawyers are going to be few and far between, right? That's what, isn't that what I, oh, I'm sorry, Colin. Um, you'll be there. You'll just be in a very small neighborhood from what I, from what I understand. No. But yeah, I guess they were just so impressed that a lawyer would do that. They gave, was I bitter? Was I bitter about that? That I remember it like 30-some years later? Damn. Just a little bit, but you know, it was good for me. It was good for me because it was teaching me that. There are many tasks for the kingdom of Christ, and none of us are too good for any of them. Amen? Yeah, could John Piper be asked to set up the, the chairs for a dinner in a given situation? I suppose, right? He's probably already done, you know, that in the past. But I mean, there, in itself, there's nothing so small that you're too big to do that thing. And in fact, and this is the point that I'm trying to make here, that's the way God starts to deploy you into ministry. Amen? That's just a clear biblical principle. You start in in small things, and, and those small things aren't small even. We just think of them as small. All right, secondly, he tends to call you into mentoring relationships. Also, verse 25, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose name was Mark. You say, you just read that. I know. Um, I love the character John Mark. How many like John Mark? It's just a char- an interesting character. And I'm not going to go too much into that today because it's still coming, and I don't want to jump too far ahead. But remember where we've met him so far. Yes? Back when Peter was in prison and then, you know, the whole thing with the angel kicking him in and telling him to get up and that whole bit. And he goes to a house. Do you remember that there was Rhoda that came to the door and the gate and all of that? And it was said to be the house of one Mary, not Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, but a different Mary. And she is said to be the mother of this guy, John Mark. So now Barnabas is returning with Saul, Paul, and he's got John Mark with him. Now, by the way, we're going to find out uh, in the book of Colossians that Barnabas was Mary's cousin. So this is, uh, this is a sort of the second cousin arrangement. Not that that's important. But anyway, you see what's going on here. It is a, it is a perfect snapshot of a mentoring, a multiple generation um, mentoring relationship. And when I say multiple generation, I'm not talking about age generation, but I'm talking about you have disciples who make disciples who make disciples. That's three generations, right? If you look at 2 Timothy 2.2, it says, and what, and this is Paul talking to Timothy, he says, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And that's, when you look at that, that's four generations, isn't it? Paul to Timothy to others who can train others. In Acts, it was Barnabas who came alongside of Saul Paul, and now John Mark. This is just the way God works. Don't you love that? This is, this is so typical. Jesus did this with the disciples. Paul does it with Timothy and Luke and, 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 and a host of others and Silas and so on and so forth. Moses did this with Joshua. And Elijah, with a J, did it with Elisha. People accuse me of saying those the same way, so I have to intone it. Elijah and Elijah. 
totally different. Um, yeah, the one trained the other. Before we're ready to take on fuller ministry, it, it is so helpful to be in a discipling kind of relationship, what we also call mentoring relationships. I'll never forget, I'm going back to seminary again, so that t- shows you how old I'm getting, that, I, that I'm, I'm stuck in one place. But, but I remember in a, uh, in a class one time that uh, a seminary professor asked the question, he said, how many of you have been discipled by someone? And this was a class of about 50 guys, and two people raised their hand. I didn't raise my hand. Uh, because in my mind, I had not been discipled. Now, here's the thing. I thought that the professor was talking about something very, very regimented. Like, you know, you, you, you get saved in, like at a, in a college ministry. And then they, they go, okay, NAV 2-7, we're going we're gonna to take you through these five books. And, and I'm going to sit with you once a week. And we're going to go over the lesson. And that's, that's what I pictured. So I, I didn't put my hand up. But, you know, since then, I thought about it. It's like, I should have had my hand up because like, there were several men along the way in my Christian journey that, that were there, that, that spoke into my life, that, that gave me an example, that talked me through things, that helped me, helped me think about things. And, and I could say, really, and in fact, yes, I had been discipled. And we need that in the church. It, it is an indispensable part of the Christian life. It is an indispensable part of how the church should operate, investing in the lives of others, and it doesn't have to always be a formal training scenario. It doesn't mean that you have to take people through the navigator. Perfectly good material, by the way, the NAV NAV 2.7, and there's about a thousand other programs that you could take somebody through. But um, what what we need in those kinds of relationships is a relationship. So it's relational there's input, the person receives the input, there's talking, there's praying, there's dreaming, there's sharing, there's example setting, there's learn from my bad example, I'll tell you some mistakes. I'm, there's all of that tied into it, and that's just part of how it ought to work. How many here have been, I won't make you raise your hand, I'll just ask you, you know, raise your, the hand of your heart, but how many of you, did you know you had the hand of the heart? You do now. Uh, but just, like, have you been mentored? Have you been discipled by someone? Again, not, I'm not saying that they met with you every single week and went through set material, but I'm just saying, has, have there been people along the way who invested in you, spent time with you, encouraged you, talked to you, helped you see where God was taking you, helping, helping you recognize mistakes and so forth? But then the question becomes, are you doing that Formally or informally with someone else. Because that's how God works. That's how people become deployed to do ministry. And I'm not necessarily talking about full scale, whatever you want to call it. You get paid to be a pastor kind of ministry. I'm just saying ministry, whether it's you know, uh, teaching Sunday school or one or whatever, it takes those relationships, those, those discipling relationships. That's how God tends to work. Finally, this is going to occupy more of our time, this last point. He tends to call you through the local church. In fact, I'd almost say it's more than a tendency there. <sighs> By the way, you'll notice that my ratio of verses to points just completely went wacko there. I had two with one verse, and now I got one with three verses. So it makes no sense whatsoever. But anywho. Um, so, okay. Barnabas, Saul, John, Mark, they come back to Antioch, to the church that had sent them. And we read that when they get back to Antioch, we find out that there are a group of five particularly important leaders within the church. 
two of whom are Barnabas and Saul. So we don't have to talk too much about them right at this moment. But then there's these three other guys. We'll just look at this really quickly. Uh, It says, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, got hint that already, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Okay. Simon called Niger was probably a very, very dark-skinned African person from North Africa, probably from Cyrene, because in effect, this, this Simeon called Niger, by the way, Niger means black in Latin, and it was a Latin loan word into, into the Greek. So um, they, they'd given him a nickname. We wouldn't do that today, would we? Uh, but they, they, they weren't sensitive about that. They, he's really dark, and he's from Africa, so we're just going to call him uh, Black. And uh, that was his nickname. But it was Simon of Cyrene. At least that's, that's the best um, guess. And also the church fathers have, have indicated that this was none other than Simon of Cyrene who carried the cross of Christ. You also have this guy named Lucius. He's also of Cyrene. So out of the five, you already have two uh, two men who are from the continent of Africa. You've got Menean, and uh, this, he, he's an interesting character because he was a, it says here, a lifelong friend. Some translations would be like a foster brother, somebody that was raised right there with um, Herod the Tetrarch. You go, Herod the Tetrarch, which one was that? I'm glad you, glad you asked. There's a lot of Herods, aren't there? But Herod the Tetrarch is also Herod Antipas, which is also Herod who killed John, who imprisoned John, killed him, who uh, wanted, to get, you know, wanted to see Jesus, finally gets to see him, and ends up mocking him and sending him back to Pilate. It's that Herod. And this Menean guy was raised with him, was right there, was close to him. And he's probably uh, one of the places where Luke got a lot of insights into what happened in the court there. That's it. That's the five. What were they doing? I hope you appreciate that little, that little bit. It served no purpose but just to give us a little background there. So while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now John Stott points out, and I think it's a good, uh, a, a good truism, that most of the time fasting is not something that people do just for the benefit of fasting, at least not in Scripture. Well, that's more of a modern thing. We do that to lose weight or something, you know, intermittent fasting. But, but fasting was almost always the absence of a thing, particularly eating in this case, right, in order to devote yourself to something else. What are they devoting themselves to here? In the first instance, to worship. To worship. They are worshiping and fasting. We're not given much detail what that worship looked like. We don't know exactly what, and I assume that the whole church is there. It's not just the leaders, but you've got the whole church, but there is some kind of worship happening, probably singing, uh, reciting the psalms or chanting the psalms and, and uh, prayers and probably somebody expounding on scripture. But within the context of this, again, not told how it happened, the Holy Spirit in some way conveys, maybe through one of the prophets that are mentioned here, he is able to convey to them that they are to set apart Paul and, and, well, Saul and Barnabas. For what purpose? For the work that, that, that he's going to send them on. doesn't even say what the work is. What was the, what was the work, by the way? It's the first, first missionary journey, right? First missionary journey. He does this in the context of the assembled church. And I want to 
I want you to see what I'm saying and suggesting here. I could have made the third point, the Holy Spirit deploys us. And that would have been correct. Would have been correct. But what I want you to see is that the Holy Spirit calls us and moves us and deploys us through the local church. It is in the context of that church. We need to see this. The word comes as the church is meeting in verse 2. And then we find out, and it's almost like a repetition, but sort of a furthering of the idea in verse 3. Then after fasting and praying, so they fasted and worshiped. Fasting and praying is at the same, and just rephrase, or is it in addition to, I can't really say, but after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. In other words, we would, what would we say today in the church? What, what term would we use for that? I'm looking for you know, smart, edu- educated people. That, what would we call that in the modern church? Com- I heard commission. That's true. That's, that's true. There's another word too. Uh, ordaining. Right? We ordain elders. We ordain, ordain paths. They're ordained and they are commissioned. The church sees recognizes the gifts of these men. They, they are fasting, they're seeking God. They, they have the distinct sense that the Holy Spirit is calling them and so they fast and they pray and they lay hands on them and then they, with the blessing of the church, they send them. Yes, it's the Holy Spirit. We, we would not ignore the fact that it is the Holy Spirit but it is so, so biblical and so New Testament and so right that it's within the context of the church. It's the church that, that, that is there to receive that, to understand that, to interpret that, and to, and to put, the, put the, uh, the, the confirmation behind it. I don't think I'm overstating this. You might think I'm overstating it, but I don't think I'm overstating it. When I look at Paul and his relationship to Antioch, it's funny, um, I don't know that I ever really noticed it so much before, but have you ever thought about how connected he really was with Antioch and the congregation there? I mean, he'd been there for a year working w- with Barnabas alongside. He let himself be sent to Jerusalem. He came, he reported back to that church. He, who knows how long the period was that intervened where, you know, where he was a teacher in the church. The church calls him, they send him. Where does he go when he gets done with the first missionary journey? Just take a wild guess. Antioch, yes, Antioch. And where do you think he came after the end of the second missionary journey? Antioch, yeah. Where do you think he came at the end of the third missionary journey? Please don't say Antioch because I don't want to embarrass you. (laughs) Yeah, he did end up in Rome. Yeah, he he got as far as Jerusalem on his way back and then he got arrested. But for my money, I think he would have been on his way back to Antioch on the third one, don't you? Because it was the church. And And Paul was called directly by Jesus. On the road to Damascus, he could have said, I don't need any of you. You think about it, you go back to the Old Testament, and the writer of Hebrews does this, and it's an analogy. It's not, I'm not saying this is the, the interpretation of, of the passage I'm quoting from, but in the book of Hebrews, it says, of the priesthood, no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And again, I know that's not what the passage is intending to say you know, in that context, but there's a parallel there that we don't simply just call ourselves into ministry. It has to be from God, but how do we know that that call is is genuine? We sense we're called, we feel a sense of calling, but we need the church, the local church, to come alongside and say, yes, we see that. 
There is ample evidence in the New Testament that this was their practice. You know what? There's also ample evidence in the New Testament that some people didn't apply that. And so there were false teachers that would go around and they would end up disturbing people. They would go to places like Thessalonica and tell them, hey, you know what? The day of the Lord has already occurred. And there were those that went to Corinth and said, hey, you know what? The resurrection's already happened. But what you see operating within within the true church of of the New Testament time period is that most of the time they were the, the people that were approved by a local congregation had confirmation even in written form. Did you know that? Think about Apollos. Apollos was in Ephesus, Acts 1827, and it's speaking there about, um, about that er- the early days of his ministry. It says, And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. So that's the, processes, the, the process of churches deploying commissioned workers. That protected the church, on the one hand, because you didn't have to listen to just anybody that came through saying, oh, you know what, God called me, so listen to what, I've ha- what I'm going to tell you here. They could say, hey, who's sending you? Where's your letter? It's protected the churches. It also had the effect of strengthening men who were called to ministry. If you ever decide to go into pastoral ministry and a church gives you that confirmation, you will be glad if you went through a process of what, what we call now ordination, kind of what we're seeing here. Because you know what? Ministry chews people up like mad, mad crazy. And uh, I, I think Great Bend hasn't been the easiest place uh, for pastors historically. So uh, you, want, you want more than just that voice that you thought you heard in your heart. You, you want to look back and remember people that said, we, we see that gift. We, we see that that's there. Paul could say to Timothy, he said, Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. In other words, pastoral ministry. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Doesn't that sound like ordination? Because it is. Because <laughs> that's exactly what, what Saul and Barnabas had going for them when they left on the first missionary journey. And Timothy could look at that and say, yes, I know. Not just because in my own mind or my own heart I thought or felt that, but because the church came alongside of me. I remember a young youth pastor years ago. He was the first youth pastor we called up in Minnesota when I arrived at the church there. And uh, he came to us. He was a recent college graduate. And he felt called to the mission field. You might say, well, why, why did he come to your church as a youth pastor candidate? Well, he didn't feel like he was yet ready for that. So he came, and, and we hired him, and, and you know, there was a lot of life-on-life life thing happening there, and a lot of, of learning ministry, of doing the task, and then over time, it was clear that, yeah, he was supposed to be a missionary. His name's Tony. We support him here at this church, and the church there gathered around and ordained, and, and, and he is still going strong, and through much adversity, but that you cannot under, or I guess you'd say you cannot overestimate. You cannot underestimate. Anyway, 
it's important. It is so important what the church does and how, how it, 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 it gives that confirmation. And I, um, Yeah, here at Grace, we aspire to such things. We aspire to be a biblically faithful church, not only in, in the preaching, but in, in how we do church. We, we want to be doing these sorts of things. And so part of the membership process, you'll know, is to try to help people figure out what am I gifted at? Where should I be using my gifts here in the church? And ideally, as time goes on then, you know, having helped you sort of at least got, got you, know, the, a, a, you know, big print idea of what maybe God wants to do in your life, then we want you to have those things that you can engage in, tasks to get involved in and, and show yourself faithful in. And with time, you know, uh, to, to have that confirming of, of ministry skills and gifts. Maybe it's teaching in Awana. Maybe it's putting tables up. Maybe it's, you know, this guy, maybe it's going on a mission trip. But, but God, we want God to be using these very, very common things in the church, in a very common, ordinary church, to do great things in your life. We have some young men here, by the way, that are um, going through a, um, yeah, through seminary online and they're a part of our church and we're really glad to have them and and we're seeing exactly those things taking place in their life where God's training and using the church to affirm and, and confirm that call to ministry and I'm I'm thrilled for that we ought to trust God that God is capable of doing this through and in the context of the local church God can deploy us rightly into ministry and he can also call sinners to the light of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And you know, that's really the only way for us to even be talking about what we're talking about today. Because you can't talk about being, you know, Paul at Antioch being confirmed and sent by the church on the missionary, first missionary journey. You can't talk about that until you've talked about his road to Damascus. He had to get to or halfway to Damascus before he could get to Antioch. You have to come to Christ. You have to have that experience of having your eyes open to see the truth of the gospel. And seeing that truth, you have to bow, bow your knee and bow your heart and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. And when you do that, not only will you be saved and not, not only will all the benefits of, of Christ's salvation come to you, but God will deploy you. He will do, if, if, you, if you do as, as you need to do, if you become part of a local church, you will find that God has more than enough ways to connect you into the ministry that you need to be doing. Let's pray. Lord, we trust your word and we thank you that it's so clear. Sometimes it's hard, Lord, when we read your, your scripture. Sometimes we get confused, but some of it is just... It's just so plain and so clear. We see these patterns of how you work and, and, and we can find it. We can find it confirmed in so many places. Lord, that you do. You do call us to, to task that we prove ourselves to be faithful in. And Lord, that you use people in our lives to mentor and disciple us. And Lord, that you use the church to confirm calling in our lives. So I pray that you would do that. I pray that every Christian heart here would be encouraged by that. And Lord, that, that we would neither fret that you won't call us, nor fret that you will, but, but trust you. And trust that you do deploy us rightly for your kingdom purposes. And uh, Lord, we would also pray that you would open someone's heart today, that they might not um, leave here without 
understanding the gospel of Jesus Christ, your son, who was born uh, to the virgin and lived a sinless life and was put to death at Calvary, buried, rose the third day, and, uh, and through him, Lord, your eternal life, your, your salvation is offered to sinners. And, and we pray that today, through him, um, we might see people trust and come to eternal life. We ask it in his name. Amen.